You're listening to Season 3 of Seeking Refuge, a podcast sharing the human stories of refugees. This week, we are examining the situation in Afghanistan. In 2019, Afghanistan had 2.7 million refugees, 300,000 asylum seekers, and 4 million IDPs. Today, we are speaking with Representative Safiya Wazir, the first refugee to be elected to the New Hampshire House of Representatives. Your host for this week is me, Patrick Anderson. I'm here with New Hampshire House of Representatives, uh, Representative uh, Sophia Wazir. So, Representative Wazir, thank you so much for coming on to the Seeking Refuge podcast. Thank you, Patrick, for having me, and I'm delighted to be interviewed by you. So I just want to start off with letting our viewers know kind of who you are, um, you know, your gen- just general information. So, you know, this is your, your chance to kind of just kind of set the stage with uh, what you do and your background. Thank you. Um, I am uh, New Hampshire State Representative Sophia Wazir. Uh, recently ran for my second term in 2020 and won my second term. I serve on the Children and Family Law Committee. Um, I grew up in Afghanistan. In 1997, we flew from Uzbek, uh, Afghanistan to Uzbekistan, and I'm sure we will talk about that later. And I came to US in 2007 as a refugee. And I am a graduate from Concord High School, and I have a business degree from NHDI, the community college in Concord, where I live. And um, I'm a policymaker. I'm a parent of three children, uh, happily married and active in my community. So the first thing I want to start off with is kind of your childhood uh, living in Afghanistan. So what was that like? I know you left when you were about six. So what kind of memories did you have, if any? My memories is a bit um, rough at age of six, I would say, Uh, but I did travel back to marry my husband. Um, So I do have some memories um, from 2012. So um, I, myself, my mom and dad, we flew Afghanistan in 1997 due to the um, war and uh, civil movement by Taliban that happened. Um, I do remember a tiny bit of a um, how beautiful the the nature of our culture was, how beautiful these mountains were, and the village that we lived in. And the life of village was beautiful, the green grasses and this fresh air and the mountains and so many beautiful things that um, I miss. And we don't see that often in New Hampshire when I compare some of the lives. Uh, but I'm grateful for the peaceful and the uh, welcoming community that I am at in New Hampshire, in Concord, where I raise my kids. And it's um, I chose New Hampshire for one reason was that the style, the lifestyle, it's almost, almost like the town that I grew up in Afghanistan, uh, the uh, province that I grew up. It's the, um, the peacefulness, it's the community, how 
um, solid it is, how beautiful, how uh, welcoming it is. And it was somewhat similar to the place I grew up. Um, I also remember um, my parents tell me a little bit of stories of um, a time where I was only a year old that there was some sort of um, war that started and they had to leave temporarily from their homes and uh, calling me the chubby baby <laughs> that they have to carry me and, um, you know, kind of like go leave their houses for safety. And my mom would say how heavy I was and made them tired that they had to go on the mountains. So that was uh, one of the memories I remember. So my father is an engineer who is educated and has a um, bachelor's in engineering and um, he spoke Russian. And um, so we've kind of felt like we were targeted because of um, him being working with um, engineers and speaking Russians and uh, you know, all that made us targeted. So, but the main thing for us was to look for safety. Um, my parents wanted me to grow up in a place that was safe and had um, education available and make sure that I was raised properly. So um, that was the reason we left Afghanistan at age of six. Um, I did return back in 2012 to marry my husband. Uh, my um, marriage is um, based upon cultural um, heritage by like um, pre-arranged marriages. I'm sure you know about that or not. Yeah. Pre-arranged marriages are basically chosen by your parents. And um, uh, I finished my high school years and where uh, my parents visited back home in 2011 and decided that they gonna choose a husband for me. <laughs> um, let me tell you, I was not happy about it. So I was not happy that I had to choose um, to marry someone that I'd never met before. Mm. Um, so it was a difficult transition for me and difficult transition for my parents to, uh, you know, kind of like uh, talk about these issues. I mean, the marriages and how they want me to be successful in life and how they want me to raise my children and, you know, be a, a family oriented person, which thankfully I am. I love my family. I love my husband and I love my kids and I love everybody in my family. <laughs> so, um, so this was a conversation and never happened in the past, but, um, but it happened, you know, yeah. it didn't take that long, it happened. So I said, okay, I'll marry um, in 2012 in my first semester in college, I went back to Afghanistan for the first time and after many years um, to marry my husband. And um, I think I made the right choice and I'm, I'm happy that I found the right person to marry. And he is one of the supporter of mine and we work shoulder to shoulder to uh, protect our children and raise our children and be, um, you know, uh, and it's, it's so rare because Patrick it's rare because uh, many Afghan men's um, see the, their wives to be their housewives and not particularly be out there, you know, 
advocating or working or things like mm-hmm. that. And, mm-hmm. and that's rare and it doesn't happen. And um, someone who is grow up in Afghanistan not all the time knows what are those aspects are and how to handle it. Um, as soon as he came to United States in 2014, um, he wasn't like one of those hard men to kind of like tell me not to do certain things. Mm-hmm. He was a very outgoing person said, you know, you can do whatever you want in your life with. So, yeah. And something that stood out very well that sometimes people say, hey, this is doesn't really work out for me. But for me, everything went smoothly. And I'm so thankful that he is very supportive of what I do and what I stand for. So um, to back to your question of what I remember from back Afghanistan, mm-hmm. um, one thing I remember in 2012 was how devastating the people were, how um, sad the people were. It was um, it was in the middle of a war zone, you know, people literally were kind of recovering from the war zone, but still the buildings were tortured and people um, were homeless and basically had no homes and no foods and poverty level was so high and um, seeing people with um, kids on the street begging for money, begging for food. It hurts me so much to see that. Um, I left as a child, so I didn't get to see those or was if there was, I never knew because I was a child. But when going back as an adult and seeing those um, lifestyle just changed me so much. And it was hard. I mean, um, I had some difficult difficulties in my life too in Uzbekistan, but I outgrew it, you know. I came to US and had, um, I made my life in a way I want it to be. You know, I worked hard mm-hmm. towards it. Mm-hmm. And um, seeing them was one of the challenges thing that happened to me because regardless of how much hard they have to work, they don't get to achieve that level because we didn't have the government to support them. We didn't have the people to support them. So. Um, it's a it's a memory that will stay with me forever that how hard it is for people to live in the country right now. So I want to talk about uh, your time in Uzbekistan. So what was that like uh, being there, getting there when you were so young and then kind of going through the majority of your childhood and teenage years uh, in a different country uh, as a refugee? Thank you uh, for your question, Patrick. Yes, life in Uzbekistan were very difficult and much different than Afghanistan. Um, yes, we um, seek a safety for our uh, for self and went to Uzbekistan in 1997. The sole priority for us was to to be able to find a place that is safe and be able to, I can go to school um, at a very, young age, I realized that education was one thing I desired and had hopes in me so much. If I pursued my schooling and got good grades and all that, I would be a good person and I would be achieving my dreams. And that's that happens at a very young age. So roughly I would say at seven, uh, I went to school and um, Yes, I faced so many discriminations and bullies bullied me at very young age. Uh, 
um, those memories sticks to me and those memories are often not shared and I don't wanna share with many people or even with my own kids. Uh, my oldest one is seven right now at her age being bullied and called me the Taliban kid. It hurts me so much because I didn't know what the Taliban was. I did not know um, what kind of person they were and calling me that name and um, hurting me and bullying me because of something was happening back home and I have nothing to do with it. And all I wanted to be able to go to school and um, you know, be a, a smart person like them. Yeah. But that bullying made me stronger because I wanted to face the challenges. And I was, you know, just making sure that I was, you know, learning the subjects and getting always at least um, not A's, at least I could get B's, you know, mm -hmm. that was my perception yeah. of um, moving forward. And yeah. I never shared my story with my parents, because if I, uh, if I knew that um, if I shared and they would abandon me from going because I did not want them to do that to me. And they obviously mm -hmm. not wanted me to get hurt by anyone and um, anything happened to me. So I kind of kept that shut in myself and never said anything to my parents. So um, the process of, of becoming refugee, uh, the UNHCR, um, we were entitled with them to protect us under their ability. And um, the process of the paperwork, it was a lot of work to do. Um, it took many years for us to not lose hope and be able to find our new home and settle in. So just my teenager years when Uzbekistan um, and uh, childhood years was very depressing that, um, like I said, all my focus was to just go to school, come back, study, and be ready for tomorrow. So I didn't really get to do a lot of um, other teenagers would do or um, childs would play or do things like that um, because I was afraid of the people that hurt me and call me names and mm -hmm. me because it happened once and I did not, did not want it to happen again. But the UNHCR had a program for refugees kids that would um, allow them at least once a week or twice a week, they would uh, be some sort of classes where we can participate and meet other refugee kids and we would have social time there. So would teach us like, uh, you know, ABCs or um, some sort of English or math or something, and even um, sometimes help us with our homeworks and had difficulties in that. So um, that's where I get my, a lot of my social times. That kind of brings me to my next question I had is outside of school, what was the community like in Uzbekistan in regards to refugees? Were you with other refugees? Uh, was was it somewhat welcoming, at least from a community or government aspect? Um, no, the government did not like refugees. And it was basically, we were not welcomed. Um, we, um, we lived in apartments, was funded through the UNHCR. We had our own um, spaces. We were very limited. You know, we weren't able to work. We weren't able to welcome to the community. Um, we weren't able to really play outside with anybody. Um, it was so, um, it was like 
isolated. We were so isolated. We couldn't do a lot of things. Um, there was no support from the government. They did not like refugees. We would kind of like hide ourselves in our apartments. And if you had the UNHCR paperwork, great. If a policeman comes in and if you show that paperwork, they would let you kind of go, but they would still fine you and take money from you. So that was happening a lot. But if, if you kind of like misplaced your paperwork, anything, you would be in really danger and could really go into jail or get punished or deported or something like that would happen. I did not know much about it, but um, sometime I uh, talked to my mom and dad about how it was, how people were afraid of the policemen that show up around eight, nine or 10 o'clock at night, people's house and knock their doors um, to kind of like uh, grasp them at a, at a sleeping mode to try to figure out if they're documented or not documented. So getting towards your time uh, where you moved to America, I know you said there was a lot of paperwork. What was that process like? Had you applied to go to the United States since you arrived in Uzbekistan and just took that long to get there? What was that like? All right. So the process of um, coming to to the third country, it's a lot of time and a lots of waiting and there's a lot of waiting games that happens. Uh, once we applied for UNHCR and seeking their help, that we were, you know, we weren't able to go back home because there was war zone and how difficult it was. So basically you apply for UNHCR and they interview you. And once you get approved through them, then they will protect you. So your case will be with the UNHCR and whenever the third country um, try to, you know, invite or try to bring more refugees to their country, we'll interview and look at those cases and pick and choose kind of thing. So once you've been picked up, and, and let me tell you, it took us 11 years to come to the United States. And we were still hoping that we would come to our final destination. It has a lot of process to it. And people think that refugees, they look differently at refugees and, um, you don't think how difficult it is to come as a refugees. There is a lot of paperwork associated with it. There's a lot of background checks associated with it. There's a lot of medical um, histories and medical checks associated with it. So once you've been looked up by the third country, your case, they look at it. And if, we, if they say, okay, I want this person to be interviewed. So they will come to that country to interview not just one person. So they, basically there will be many mores. And um, so they will interview this person and you will not get the result right away. You will not be said, okay, you're approved to come to this country or denied. So after about a year or six month pass, you will hear from the UNHCR saying, you've been approved or denied. Once you approved, so I'm talking about the approval now. If you get approved um, after so many months, I would say, once you get the okay from the third country, and there will be a examination, which they do like the whole body examination and background checks to make sure you're the right person, you're not um, terrorist, you're not a killer or whatever that they are looking for. So, um, you will go to another place. So we went 
we were in Uzbekistan and we traveled to Tashkent, the capital city. It was about eight hour of drive in a bus. So we went there. Um, so they do a three day examination. They will do uh, scans, they will do blood works, they will do all sort of examination to your body. After three days, they take the, all the medical necessities and take them back to be laboratories. And once the labs are done after six or seven months, you'll hear the result. If anything wrong with it, you will have to get treated and redo the examination, which holds up someone's cases. And thankfully for my family, we had no issues. And after six months, I believe the results came positive, meaning no issues. So I learned very hard way. Negatives, it's you don't have issues. Positives in the US, it's like you have an issue. So for us, it's the opposite. If it's positive, you're good to go. If negative, that means you have some issues. So for us, we had no issues and we were rock and roll. We were good to go. And then we had to get passports. We had to get uh, pictures, all that. That took another month. Mm. So we, we did those and then we gave our passports and um, everything that they needed to UNHCR to send it to get the visas, the visa to stamp it on our um, in our um, passports. So that took another month. So there is almost, once you get the interview, there's almost like two years until you get the okay, the final. And then once you get the visas, then we'll, they will do your um, tickets and all that. So um, that's where you got the ticket, you got the passport and you are good to go. Mm -hmm. So that took mm -hmm. almost, um, almost two years for us. Almost. Wow. So. Yeah, coming to U.S. took us 11 years. And finally, in 2007 of November, uh, we were arrived to New York, the magical day of living, the uh, dream come true, which uh, one of the nights that it was at 10 o'clock. So I'm going to tell you a little story of this um, magical night that I had. Um, 16 and a half at 10 o'clock at night, you know, flying by the Statues of Liberty, and it was dark, it was beautiful. Those, I never seen those tall, beautiful, lighted buildings. I was like, I was basically sitting right next to the window, so I got to see a lot of those. Yeah. I was so happy, like, I was like jumping out of my seat. And that was the moment I finally thought that this is the safest place for me, and all my dreams will come true. I will work hard to make sure that I achieve everything I deserve. And that's what happened. And um, not alone in New York, we landed around 11-ish and we stayed there overnight. There were some little delays on the check-in with my father, fingerprints and stuff. So we stayed there basically overnight. Once they was everything settled and that we were okay, we're cleared. Uh, we went to the hotel at four in the AM. At 5.30, we were picked up again. So we couldn't sleep, we're exhausted. It's no sleep we at all. Food, um, so we were starving. At 5.30, we were picked up for our next flight, which we have to come to New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. I thought New York was our destination. Yeah, that's, that's what, my perception was, my idea was, it's like, here we go, we're here. 
And then we were picked up at 5.30 to come to uh, New Hampshire for our next flight. So I do have a very a, um, different perception now because mm. once we were departed into this small airplane that would only hold like what, 10, 15 people, yeah. completely my idea changed. I was like, where are we going? Why is this airplane so small? And as we are flying New York, I don't see those tall buildings anymore. I don't see the city anymore. All I see is trees. There's all, I call the naked trees because it was winter. So it was <laughs> trees that didn't have leaves. Yeah. Why all these naked trees am I seeing? And what happened to the city? Where are we going? So I had this question. It's like, until all the way we came to Manchester airport, it's like, what is going on? And when we arrived to Manchester Airport, uh, we were welcomed by our case manager, who was um, African-American, who was also a refugee back then. And he worked with Lutheran Social Services, the um, organization that uh, welcomed refugees in New Hampshire. So, so obviously we don't speak English and he's speaking English and um, I'm literally like, I have tears as, to, as we are, you know, kind of sitting in his cars and um, trying to try to come to Concord. And all I see is pile of snows and naked tree. Okay. Mm -hmm. So as he is driving the highway and all I see is trees and snow. And I'm like, what happened to the city? Where are we going? <laughs> I can't say it in English. So I'm obviously like kind of question my parents, like, where are we going? And my, my mom is like, how do I know? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> that memory that sticks to me so much. It's like, I'm like asking my mom, like, where are we going? She's like, you're seeing the same thing as I am. I have no <laughs> idea. Um, so that was a story of us coming to New Hampshire and the place that resonated with me and we've been here for 11 years and obviously there's a lot of um other stories that associated with our settling in concord and the food groups and how difficult it was for us to um accept the new food and the challenges that we faced mm -hmm. there are a lot of that we uh, we faced um, very much the um not knowing English impacted our life a lot and not being able to communicate with our case manager. So that, um, that was one of the challenges um, heavily impacted our life, uh, which led me to um, study the dictionary called Persian to English dictionary, which I don't speak Persian, but it's similar. The yeah. Persian vocabularies are similar to Dari so I was basically, you know, had that in my face 24 seven. I would memorize vocabularies. And if I did not know how to put it into sentence, I would just say the vocabularies to the case manager, be like. Mm -hmm. Before that, I actually want to share one more thing. Sure. Um, because um, we Afghans like to drink teas, green teas and pots and cups we like those so we didn't have those and uh, we didn't know how to call tea bags or the pots and the caps uh, the caps and then my dad and i drew a picture of it so <laughs> and communicated with our case manager we need a teapot with the cups and tea bags 
So that's one of the uh, resonated story that stick to me again. So what was it like then going to like an American high school then, especially learning English at the time? Uh, was it difficult? How was it compared to Uzbekistan? Um, one thing was in the positive direction that we had ASOL and Concord High School, mm-hmm. which I'm grateful for. Um, but we didn't have a lot of diversity back then yeah. in my time in 27, uh, 2007. Um, but now we have much larger diversity community in the Concord High School District, Concord, Concord District School. Um, it's a lot different than what I saw in 2007 than it is now. Um, so I was the first or second refugees that arrived to US and there was a couple other uh, people from Congo was there and I was there. So there was like maybe roughly four or five mm-hmm. refugee kids that was in school. Um, one thing that was different was definitely we didn't get bullied. So that's for sure. And I'm thankful for that. If I did get bullied, I would not know what to say because um, I'm still learning English. And um, mm-hmm. and obviously bullying is something happens a lot at school levels and um, what made me to to fight later yeah. we'll have a discussion about that mm-hmm. um, so school was a challenging here as well um, I couldn't fit myself in and couldn't find friendship couldn't find a person who would want to talk to a stranger who did not speak English um, I did notice that it was heavy. A lot of people were there basically minding their own businesses and not being acceptive of who's around them. And even, um, even with the teachers, and I noticed that, and I noticed how the teachers were different. And I, and I don't blame them because we didn't have the diversity. And as mm-hmm. you know, New Hampshire is 95%, almost 95% white population back then we had basically very little diversity um, attending school or even in the communities. So there wasn't a lot of interaction from the teachers either. So they just demanded that you get your work done. And Mm. that was really hard. And I'm so grateful that we had this ASOL um, who was the main teacher was um, from American. And there was uh, one other person who was, um, you know, from another country was assisting us. Uh, but nobody spoke our languages. So they were basically, they were trying their best to help us with our homeworks and stuff. Um, so there, was, there wasn't a lot of help from the school system. There wasn't help from the teachers. There wasn't help from the students that would, you know, kind of like talk to you or, you know, help you out. Um, I do remember me being at the first time in the school, I got lost because, you know, you have this schedule and you have to kind of follow the bell rings and you yeah. move around the school, which I was new to that. Uh, in Uzbekistan, you just sit in one area and the teachers kind of swap in, but oh, okay. in here, different. So, yeah. which made it harder for me to grasp um, as I had to like move around all the time. So that made it difficult to kind of like build in a friendship with a classmate too. Um, that was a comparison in Uzbekistan to here. So we, if we had a friend in one classroom, would be in that classroom until like we graduate high school. There was there wasn't much of a moving around. The only time we moved around was if we had 
um, second language and which I participated in, in Russian language. And we would, you know, move into, uh, go to the uh, Russian classroom. The only time we would kind of like change and yeah. leave the classroom. For here, it was much of moving around and I got lost. I had no idea where I'm going and um, the bells are ringing and everybody's like moving like that mm -hmm. direction. Yeah. So crowded, the halls are crowded and I was so lost, I stopped crying. I just sat down and cried. So when everything settled down, you know, wipe my tears and look at the paper again and try to figure this out. So I went back to OSOL and I said, what is this? So they took me to my class and where I went and sat down and the teacher gave me a tardy list. So I was like, <laughs> what is this? <laughs> um, and she didn't appreciate that I made it to a classroom. <laughs> but instead she gave me a tardy list. And um, so my first year as a sophomore, which I went basically like the last quarter, uh, mm -hmm. was rough and rough. It was really difficult yeah, for me. I'm sure. um, and we coming into summer vacation. So I got quarter, last quarter, fourth quarter of the freshman year. And I jumped into finding jobs. So in the summertime, I was like, all right, I need to get to the workforce. So I found two jobs, two retail jobs. I worked part-time for both and that equals to full-time. So I start supporting my family. And um, by the September, we're going to be I'm going to be a sophomore year in my 10th grade. It was a whole new of me. I had built up my skills of communication. Mm -hmm. I was able to communicate well. I was able to participate into many things. Um, I was able to even make a friend and have a conversation. So that yeah. was a plot. Um, and then start doing very well in my school. So, and uh, from sophomore year, I was on honors roll in my school. So Excellent. I even made it to newspaper, local newspaper that, uh, you know, just newly arrived and uh, very minimal English and making it to the honors roll and being in the newspaper made me so proud and made me work harder. Yeah. And despite that, I was um, working full time with two jobs. I ran cross country and I worked on the yearbook club. Um, I was very busy bee in uh, my high school years. So um, what made me um, busy was that if I didn't keep myself busy, I would get sidetracked and not focus. So up until now, I like to be busy and get things done. So consistently, I have a lot of things in my plate. So if mm -hmm. I don't have that, and I don't know what I would be, you know, I feel like the busy schedule keeps me motivated and keeps me going. Oh yeah, no, I, I I'm the exact same way. Um, but that you know that's that's crazy and you know so great that you were able to get on the honor roll and everything like that. Just being completely new to the language and the culture, really amazing. It was hard, and when people ask me how I did my schoolwork and how I got into honors roll, was it's the motivation because when I had free times at school, where we should call the uh, open periods, and I don't know if that's still called, but um, I had open period, our block, where I get all my schoolwork done. Either I would sit in my locker room, or I would sit in like the guidance counselor room where they have this area, quiet area. So I would go there to do my work, um, or 
during the lunch hours where I get my food and then come to my locker room or b- go back to the guidance counselor's area and eat and do my work. So that's how I get a lot of my schoolwork done. So that way I would have the afternoon to work and support my family. Um, Yes, we all worked at a minimum wage and it was difficult to um, just have my mom and dad work and pay for all the bills and rents and food and all the utilities. And let me tell you, a lot of people think that when we come as a refugees, um, that you don't have to, you know, give back to the communities or we we entitled to receive a lot of free stuff, which is not true. Um, after six months, you're entitled to pay back for your tickets that was purchased. So after six months, we had to pay back almost $4,000 to the US government that they purchased our tickets. So um, after six months, your uh, financial support from the Lutheran Social Services where they um, welcome refugees, ends so you're you're required to find job and you're required to pay back the debt that build up on you so um just seeing my mom and dad couldn't afford to pay all the debts and i had to work so i i make sure that i was working and supporting them and making sure that i was not procrastinating and falling behind on my education too so i made a commitment to myself that i would do well in school and work and support my family how have all these experiences of you working and you know going through school and everything how have they shaped you now especially that you've run for political office and that you're representing other people within new hampshire so um once um once i became u.s citizen in 2013 that i was so excited that i was proud of u.s american citizen and um I finally found my home and where um, I can raise my family. And I was seven months pregnant when I became US citizen. So once I became US citizen, I thought that I needed to do something with the certificate of naturalization. I would not just sit behind and kind of like put this somewhere, tuck it in and get old. So um, once my daughter was born, Uh, Like I said, I was motivated again. So she started going to daycare. I was um, full-time student at NHTI trying to get my degree and worked during the day and work nights and whenever my schedule allowed. It was just continuously happening until one day um, where the daycare told me that your daughter having language difficulties and, and obviously I was worried too. I was like, oh my gosh, what's happening? And, um, and so we kind of sat down and talked. I said, maybe because um, she's dual language and I speak both languages. So that could be one of the reasons. So they, um, they kind of like um, introduced me to a riverbend where they would examine to see if she's falling behind in communication or anything like that. So uh, once they examined it, so they said that she's perfectly fine. She's a little behind because of the dual language. Um, so that kind of like gave me a relief from my shoulders. Like, thank you, God, it's nothing really happening. So once she starts going to Head Start, once she qualified to go Head Start, and that's where a lot of my activism started. Um, I got involved a lot with her education. I was a um, parent who would 
attend to the classroom to observe and listen and see what are they doing, how the programs are working for my kid. And I saw a lot of improvement in her ability to communicate, ability to um, you know, participate in many things. Um, that's where the door of my success opened up. I was a, a parent who was participated into a parents meeting and uh, once I participate into parents meeting, I kind of like help other parents and kind of like recruit them be like, hey, this Head Start thing is a, a legit, it helps the kids. And, you know, I saw result and you will see too, if you're facing, you know, things like that with what I faced. And I kind of like started there. And uh, once they, um, in the meeting of the parents meeting, they said, we are, recruiting parents to participate into the policy council, which a policy council consider as making policies and uh, look over policies that shape the Head Start program. I raised my hand, I said, sign me up. And I became the chair of the policy council. So where I got to you know, hear all the parents and uh, from different Head Start programs and uh, talking about um, how the programs are working, how we should be helping parents. So that's where a lot of our things happen. And once I was the chair of the policy council, I kind of worked my way up becoming the um, board member in the community action program, which serves over 86 people in the community. I mean, 86 programs in our community, sorry including Meals on Wheels, fuel assistance. Um, those, are the, um, uh, those are the common um, programs that facilitate and help um, people in need in our communities. I am still um, treasurer of the Community Action Program in the board. Um, I recently resigned my position from the um, Policy Council just because I had a lot of stuff piling up. Um, recently resigned my vice chair of my position and pass it along to someone else new and trying to recruit them to help them um, bring new perspective and ideas. Um, so it happens from there and I participated through that and became an advocate, um, participated in one of the advocacy programs where we would uh, do a lot of advocacy parents workshop and help and educate people uh, people and parents and families, grandparents about the programs and about the uh, needs. So that's how it started. Um, and uh, one time, the children's place where it's a drop-in daycare. So there happens a lot of, there happen to be doing a lot of uh, parents group meetings. And, and uh, one night I was happening to pick up my daughter and I stop in, there was a parents meeting, some sort of events was happening. And I said, oh, okay, I'll go. So extra hour, so fine. So once I joined in, there was another two parents and this person from New Hampshire Children's Trust was there and I was there and I was just listening to the conversation. So I guess there was only three of the parents were there supposed to be 10 and seven other people didn't show up so we off track and they spoke and talked about politics what a coincidence right and um so talking about politics how things are going and stuff towards the end of the night around eight o'clock at night and here we go I'm, I'm exhausted i worked all day picking up my daughter and I thought it was a one hour thing. It lasted almost three hours. So we sat there and talked about politics. And she convinced me that, Sophia, I have seen you. You have done a lot of amazing work and you have helped and shaped Head Starts in so many different ways. 
you should consider running for office. I was like, I laughed and giggled. I said, oh, you're funny. Do you think I can do that? You know, I'm like, I have a business degree. How would I do this? And um, <laughs> it was funny. She was like, think about it. And I said, okay, well, thank you. I will. And um, in 2018, I received an Unsung Hero Award from New Hampshire Children Trust. She was the director and um, it was presented by the current governor, uh, Krista Nunu in 2018. So um, I received my award and it was, you know, something I'd done, I guess. It was effective and showed me that I was capable of and received the award, made me happy. Um, so obviously her point of telling me that I should run was behind my mind. So I was just looking for the right moment to kind of like ask my husband, ask my parents, ask my friends and you know colleagues and tell me what should I do obviously I have very little knowledge even though I participated voting into local and federal mm -hmm. offices but um, wasn't really thinking about uh, what I should be doing so yeah. um, once I had a discussion first with my husband and um, obviously I was pregnant so once he said it was okay and he would support my decision and I had to ask my mom because my mom is a person who I admire and love her to death. She is a person who helped me a lot during my campaign to watch my newborn baby. And um, so I kind of had to rely on my family to, if they had the support of, okay. So once she said it was fine, it kind of opened up the door. I was like, okay, here we go. So once I got the okay and, um, I went and filed for the position and uh, ran for office uh, as a state representative and successfully I defeated the incumbent and in Democratic Party and successfully defeated the general and um, started my work. So when you won that election, that made you the first refugee uh, to ever be elected to the New Hampshire State House. So what does that mean to you? It means to me that it opened up so many doors to our diversity, diverse community and diversity and of the people that are, you know, shouldn't be feared and shouldn't be locked down to not be able to do so many things. It opened up the doors for females to participate in so many parts. It helped um, young uh, women and young parents like myself to be able to do so many things that they want to have to do and they want to have of dreamed of wants to do and are not capable of but that given an example you are able to do certain things if you just focus and get out of your comfort zone that's what I did I'm a I'm a person that um so I have a fear of doing something but once I do it all the fear goes away in the past, in, in, in being in the office for the past two years, I have done a lot of talks with um, young females of parents who want to do good things in the community. And um, I have helped them and shaped their lives, much different perspective. Yes, there's a challenges that you will face. Yes, there is um, um, limited times that you will have. Yes, there will be a lot of demanding from you that you have to do certain things. But if you enjoy and you want to make and better the, sh um, the community of where you're living, it worth it all at the end. 
how's your journey kind of shaped your views on things you've experienced, such as, you know, immigration policies, equal rights, or women's rights? Yes. Um, so when women runs, a lot of good things happens. Um, in, in the state house, in our state house in New Hampshire, we had no lactation place for females. And I was a mom of a third baby who was mm -hmm. just born and I was breastfeeding my child and there was no lactation room, you know? And I, I wanna give you a little story of that. So <laughs> one day my baby is just three weeks old and I'm going to the state house to testify on a minimum wage bill. And he is fussy crying because he's hungry. And obviously it doesn't take bottle because I've been breastfeeding. So um, there was no room and I asked these um, officer, the security officer, I said, if I could use one of those room that is over there locked. And he said, no, you can use the bathroom. So that was so irresponsible of him that he said that to me. And it kind of hurt me. I wanted to say back to be like, can you just go and eat your lunch there? You know, that kind of thing yeah. like yeah. in my head. And Obviously, I'm polite. I don't want to say negative things. Mm -hmm. But that was in my head was happened. I cried. And I sat in behind the chairs kind of thing and then try to fit my baby. So calm him down because in like the next person, it's me who have to speak and testify on a minimum wage. Um, but thankfully, if a woman doesn't run it, their voice never been hurt. You know, they yeah. never get the chance to be hurt. So a woman runs, there will be a lots of positive things happens. And thankfully, legislator, um, Senator Martha Fuller Clark, I believe, who put in legislation um, to have a lactation pod. So it's still in a working progress. You know, we are it, it wasn't just because of me. It was many, it took many, many years to happen because um, people were coming to testify from the public and that needed that kind of room. Yeah. So that took many years, you know, to happen. So that's where I say women's perception and per participation, it's so important to shape our government because if our government ran by just male body, it's just gonna happen and affect things that will benefit them. You know, mm -hmm. females yeah. will be just like uh, left behind, same thing as women are unable to participate unhurt like in Afghanistan. That's how our government works in Afghanistan where females are unhurt, can participate and everything that happens, it's the male body does it. And that's something our nation, the American nation, my home says no, no. And I'm so proud because our women are so fearless and they fight for every rights. And um, I have done some talks about that too. So which inspires me a lot to know that we have so many fearless women are fighting regardless of, of the discrimination and the, um, mm -hmm. all the dirty things that they got to hear. And it happened to me as well, actually, in my, uh, in my race, uh, negative comments and all the uh, uh, female attacks. So it, to go back to the question, all I say is that just get fearless, get out, do things and tell the world and especially tell them men that you're capable of it. Because I was attacked 
I was attacked that I'm a mom, I'm pregnant. How would I legislate and how would I raise my kids? How would I juggle all this at once? Mm-hmm. And I think I have shown those who were attempting to hurt me by those negative comments that I am a multitasker. I'm a woman of fighter. I'm a mom and um, I am a dedicated servant to my community. Yeah, that's, that's great. I, as someone who has two sisters myself, you know, just the, the, the things that women face in today's society uh, is, you know, what you've been doing is, is truly an inspiration. So I want to kind of shift towards America's rhetoric regarding refugees. Um, obviously, we're having a, a transfer of power through the presidential election. How do you think rhetoric regarding refugees and immigrants are going to change uh, once President-elect Biden takes office? Uh, First of all, I want to say thank you to the American nation that we elected first female body to be our vice president. That tells a lot. That tells that positivity is on its way. Um, But it's shocking that we had very minimal refugees welcomed in our country in 2020. But U.S. was the place and home where a fair amount of refugees could settle in and work, give back to our communities, just like myself. Um, a proud refugee that serves her community. But a lot of people see refugees and give negatives, think about it. They give negative comments and um, how they think that refugees are, you know, stealing their rights and um, stealing their freedom or taking money from government, which is not true. And it's, and it's one thing that um, a friend of mine and I have been doing is to educate people about this, how important it is to have resettlements, how important it is to have our refugees welcomed. In the long run, it helps and shapes our communities and country in a positive direction. They work, they pay taxes, yes. They are the one who becomes engineer. They are the one who became uh, doctors, nurses, and work in the front lines, and firefighters, or engineers, and build homes. We shouldn't be thinking negatives all the time. And even even in 2020, we were facing hardship in our community, uh, in our economy, because we didn't had resettlement from 100,000. It was down to 18,000. That's a statistic that was showing how difficult it was for. Um, farmers or hotels that they couldn't hire people to work on those industries. And think about that, how that's going to shape our communities and economy wealth. You know, if we don't have the people to work, then we won't be able to move our country. So because once the 2020 kicks in, we will have a better, we will have a better um, immigration policies. We will have a of a different perspective of what we face for the past four years. So there, there's hope and there is, there is a, a good changes are coming. So what would 
your message then to refugees around the world and refugees coming to America right now who might be in your shoes like you were a few years ago? My message to them is not to give up hope because if we have hope, a lot of things happens. We waited to find our final destination and our final home 11 years. 11 years is a long time for someone. You just have to believe in yourself, do good things, and never give up. Yeah. And, and definitely people care about people. And also, there should be one other message that I would like to do is, as our community in the U.S. are listening, vote for the person who cares for another person. Because we need leaders who have a, you know, empathy at least, cares about and have a dignity um, about what's happening around the world and have a, a solid relationship with other, um, with the international organization at UNHCR and help them. Because if we find and if we get the right person to the office, we wouldn't be facing difficulties. That was Sophia Wazir talking to us about her experiences leaving Afghanistan and growing up in America. If you like this episode, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us in the comments below. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com. Follow us at Refuge Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for all the updates on our show. As always, a huge thank you to Maxi International House for making our show possible. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.